You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 20th of February, 2024. Aid for Gaza, difficult to get in, even harder to distribute. Why do we pay more attention to some crises than others? And is there scientific basis for all those jokes about the differences between men and women? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Sir Mark Lowcock will discuss today's big stories and we'll hear from exiled Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Sikhanovskaya. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, political reporter for Politics Home and by Sir Mark Lowcock, fellow of the Centre for Global Development and former head of humanitarian affairs at the United Nations. Hello to you both. Hello, Andrew. Um, we, we do often enjoy at the top of the show, as regular le- listeners will be aware, talking to our guests about the exciting, vibrant locales they have recently visited. <laughs> Nadine, you're just back from Birmingham. Yeah, I went to a Birmingham City game. I'm, I've lost my accent a lot, but I am from Birmingham originally, and Birmingham City is my team. And it's the first game I can remember for at least a decade where we actually won a game that I went to. So it was very <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, the first game you've been to that they've won for a decade, have you started to consider that the problem may be you? No, well, potentially, but then we won, so maybe I need to go more and then I can break that trend. But no, it was it was, it was, it was a good atmosphere. And as we were just saying before the show, Blues have got no owners, so there were fireworks and all these Americans trying to like jazz it up and make it kind of... There was even an American flag flying from the top <laughs> of the stadium. So there is a... It's definitely a sense of a change coming to Birmingham City. I, I, I am looking forward to seeing how that culture clash plays out between that uh, all-American can-do optimism and that delightful midland of fatalism expressed in that just there's something I don't know whether the the Birmingham attitude is a product of the accent or the other way around but it's a chicken it's, egg scenario it I think is. it's a chicken egg scenario um but you know I mean even some of our chants you know keep right onto the end of the road <laughs> um blues go down together come back up um you know it's very much um there's definitely a culture clash of the kind of American optimism and the brummy kind of it's a long haul being a Birmingham City fan and I mm-hmm. think the new owners have worked that out because we've had a difficult season particularly with Wayne Rooney, but hopefully we're on the way up now. Um, that's a, that's a, the Blues mentality. We will see how that one plays out. Um, Mark, we've, we've done this before. We will do it again. We will give over some of our air, airwaves to allow you an absolutely crashing plug for your forthcoming book. Thank you, Andrew. So it's, <laughs> it's about the rise and fall of the Department for International Development and its contribution over the course of its life to the reduction in world poverty. And you'll be thrilled to know I'm just about to try and crack the last chapter before Oof. it all goes off that, to the editor. That's a lovely moment, though. That's when it starts to dawn on you, oh, my God, this thing is going to get written. Once I've done the last chapter, the stress will disappear because I don't mind the toing and froing with the proofreaders and the editors and the index and all that. But actually, the last chapter in some ways is the hardest because if you can't put the last bit of the jigsaw in, 
none of the picture is visible. <laughs> well, with with effortless metaphors like that, I, I don't see how it can be other than a tremendous success. We will have uh, more from our panel shortly. But first, the murder of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse in July 2021 seemed bizarre at the time. He was shot dead by a gang of largely Colombian mercenaries at the presidential residence in Port-au-Prince, which one might have assumed would be better defended. Matters have not got less strange with today's new news that President Moise's widow, uh, Martina Moise, though she was injured in the attack, is among the dozens of people now facing charges related to the assassination following a two-year investigation. Well, I'm joined now by Hank Gonzalez, Associate Professor of Caribbean History at the University of Cambridge. He has travelled extensively in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, First of all, your reaction to these names appearing in, I think, initially leaked reports of the results of this investigation... Are you surprised by who has been implicated? Yeah, thanks for having me on. You got to take a kind of a no surprises approach to public life and to events in Haiti and to really some of the more really unstable and chaotic places that you might find in the world. And Haiti's right up there. Um, You know, you asked an, an interesting question earlier on in the broadcast about which trouble zones, which crisis spots which humanitarian disaster areas are in or out of the news. Maybe one answer is that how strategic are they to like world relations at any given time? So Haiti can very often be ignored, but you know, the sort of extremes that that have happened there relatively recently, especially in the last four years or so, they're really off of most people's radar, but they include such things as these mass rapes and then these insurrectionary conditions or these, you know, stark uh, periods of, you know, gang warfare. So Haiti, there's just, now you can't really, you can't really be expecting to be surprised about almost anything out of Haiti. I mean, there are four people already doing life in the United States for their involvement in the assassination. Between that and this new batch of names, and it is dozens of people, including the then Prime Minister Claude Joseph, uh, do we have any understanding of what the overarching plot was supposed to be? How was any of this supposed to work? Uh, Well, at some level, the thing kind of worked pretty well. You had this use of these Colombian sicarios, you know, so... There was, and then the idea was that their presence and the fact that people were yelling out DEA as some kind of sort of cover or some kind of pretext helps explain that there's got to be narco dimensions to a lot of these things. The other big intrigue involves the DEA keeping the sort of current leader of uprising, Guy Philippe, you know, for several years in the U.S. on drug charges. But then he's re-released into Haiti and he sort of takes a galvanizing role perhaps comparable to his role in 2004, leading these sort of insurgent forces of maybe you might say a kind of right-wing or neo-Duvalierist character. So that was part of the whole story, is the idea of, you know, this, I don't know, pooch or insurrectionary dimension. But I think with as far as this intrigue around this assassination, it may seem like simplistic or like it's a sort of an evasion on my part. But around these kinds of genuine intrigues, you got to sort of go with this logic of secrecy, like those who say don't know and those who know don't say. So Uh, I think it's really I think you have authentic mystery surrounding this one from then till now. 
How do you see this investigation panning out from here, though? I mean, there are some extraordinarily recently influential people in Haitian life on this list. Is there a realistic prospect that any or all of them end up on trial? Good question. Trial? Tricky one? I I don't know. Uh, I think, as with many of these things, it's about extradition to the U.S. So the U.S. is the real arbiter or the one that's running the functional courtrooms. Because you got to figure on the ground in Haiti where there's fusillades and burning of buildings and you could have any kind of mob action or, or further interventions of the sort that the assassination was at almost any time. So you got this kind of paramilitary, anything goes theater of conflict and skirmish. So what kind of proceedings will happen in that context? Perhaps none. Hank Gonzalez, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, You're listening to the Monocle Daily. Let's bring our panel back in, Nadine Batchelor-Hunt and Sir Mark Lowcock, and we will look at the Middle East. And since Israel began its present assault on Gaza in late October, there have been calls from around the world for the admission of at least some aid. Two of the difficulties with this have been illustrated in the last day or so, though both are indicative of the uncompromising mood still dominating Israel's thinking. At the Tzana border crossing between Israel and Egypt and the Karem Shalom crossing between Israel, Egypt and Gaza, Israeli protesters have gathered to block trucks attempting to deliver such aid as has been permitted. Inside Gaza itself, at least two incidents have been reported this week of Israeli troops opening fire on Palestinians attempting to avail themselves of the aid which has got in. Um, Nadine, it is surely the case that if Israel wanted aid to be getting into Gaza, it could be allowing aid into Gaza and more efficiently, or indeed at all, supervising the delivery of it. Yeah, I think part of it is Israel being essentially being pressured to, to allow any aid in at all by the US. Essentially, mm. I think that is where the pressure is coming from. There is a there is a, a ceasefire sentiment in Israeli society, but there is also a, a strong sentiment, and unfortunately, much of the Israeli government. Is it's quite to the extreme right who see any aid going into Gaza as going straight to Hamas. Now, that, as international observers with media, where we can see a much more balanced state of affairs, that isn't you know, people need this aid. But a, a lot of people in Israel are of the opinion that well, Hamas are just going to have it, so we shouldn't be allowing it in at all. Um, and and this really leaves the civilians of Gaza in a terrible situation. Um, you know, it's obvious more could be being done to get aid in. Um, but there is just unfortunately the political appetite isn't there, and 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 they're doing the bare minimum to mm. try and placate America. But as we've seen this week, patience with Netanyahu, with Israel's behaviour in Gaza, and this planned defensive on Rafa is growing. He's wearing pretty thin. And you know, even today, Labour's change in you know in domestic politics in the UK. Well, some of Labour's change in position has been prompted by um, domestic politic politicking, there is a general sense now that a, an assault on Rafa would be a catastrophe. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an impossible situation and, and my heart really goes out for these Palestinians who are literally just caught in the crossfire and it, it, it's horrendous. It's really horrendous. Uh, we will come back uh, to the prospect of anything being done to forestall an assault on Rafa because I know there is movement at the UN today 
which obviously, Mark, you do have experience of. But you also have experience, Mark, of what options are available to aid organisations and or the UN when the authorities in that particular area are in one way or another making things difficult. Now, it should be a fairly straightforward idea that you turn up and say, look, regardless of whatever other disputes you people may be having, people still need to eat and they need their medicine, they need somewhere to sleep, even if it is just a tent. But for reasons of their own, as we have been discussing, sometimes people don't want to allow that in, or not as much as is necessary. What options does an NGO or the UN have at a moment like that? Well, the basic principles are very simple. Aid agencies can help people. They only ever need two things. One is money and the second is access. In this case, Israel completely controls the access into Mm. Gaza, the land borders as well as the sea borders and air access. So, you know, it is because there's been totally inadequate access that we now have the serious prospect of mass loss of life through famine-like conditions, starvation and disease likely to kill a lot more people, I'm afraid. This is what's on the cards and the bombs and bullets have have killed. Mm -hmm. And the only way that's going to change is if the Israeli authorities decide to do something differently. And as Nadine alluded to, what's going on here is mostly about internal Israeli Politics. Netanyahu clearly is desperate to re- retain power. He's in hock to ultra-nationalists. Some of those, perhaps a minority, no one really knows, don't want aid getting in. And there's very little external pressure can do to change that, absent the Israelis themselves deciding to do something different. Um, Nadine, going back to Rafa, we did hear earlier this week from Benny Gantz, all your former IDF chief of the general staff, and though he is a member of Israel's war cabinet, he is pretty clearly no fan of Benjamin Netanyahu. But he did telegraph March 10th, uh, which is still a fair way off as the date on which the IDF will unleash itself upon Rafa if Hamas does not do what Israel is asking it, i.e. basically come out with your hands up and release all the hostages. What did you make of that, like imposing a deadline and leaving, well, the thick end of two weeks in which presumably diplomacy might be enacted? Is that Gantz trying to signal on Israel's behalf that we are willing to be talked out of this? I, it's difficult to say, but the the thing we've, we've seen with Israel is that they aren't afraid to carry on. Um, you know, mm. even with not not many people would have thought back in November that we'd still be here in February and this would still be going on. True. Um, Israel have, was saying it, you know, domestically, we will continue until Hamas is destroyed. But I think, you know, for the average observer who may not be aware of the more extreme elements in the Israeli government, they would have thought, oh, surely, you know, how much more can the Palestinians in Gaza take? And um, so I think on one hand, it could be, you know, giving space for diplomacy, that, that kind of break. But I, I think, you know, the, the the date that's been picked in particular, I believe, coincides with Ramadan. The beginning and, of Ramadan, yeah. Yep. And I think that is probably concerning for international allies because it's 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 linking it to a, a Muslim festival as well. So it, it's it's hard to say. Um, it is difficult to say, but it doesn't. I'm not looking at that thinking. Oh, maybe Israel can be talked down, and I can't see Hamas coming out with their hands up and handing all over the over all the hostages. So. I, I genuinely don't know. I think I think anyone that thinks they know what Israel will and won't do, um, I, I don't think they, they 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 can say for certain at this point because they are so far gone and because Netanyahu is 
fighting for his political life. This isn't as much about Netanyahu as it is about Hamas. Uh, just finally on this uh, subject, before we move on somewhat, Mark, and I, I did want to bring this back to the UN. There was a vote due today. I don't know if it's already occurred. It may have. Um, Algeria was presenting a resolution on a ceasefire to the UN Security Council, which obviously the United States was going to veto. That's not interesting necessarily in itself. What is interesting is that the US was pitching a resolution of its own, which very much stresses that the Rafa offensive, if there's going to be one, should be called off, that it should not happen. Is Are we inching towards here the US explicitly just pulling the plug on the whole thing? Well, I'm not sure they can pull the plug on the whole thing in, in extreme, the short term. In extremists, the US kind of could, couldn't they? If they just said, I, I think we, US we in, will cut you off. I think the US influence is bigger in the longer term and the medium mm-hmm. term than it is in the short term. I think what is driving things in the short term is uh, the, polit- the politics of Israel, in, in particular Netanyahu's desire to hold power. Probably Netanyahu is hoping he can do enough to stay in post until the US election and then his friend Mr Trump will be back, which will ease lots of things for Mm. him. I think that's his calculation. I think the big unknown is what the US are saying privately to the Israelis about the consequences of a mass attack on Rafa because I think that becomes something that is becomes quite intolerable for the US. Mass loss of life, heavily predicted, then playing out because of a decision the Israelis have taken. And um, what the US are juggling is what they have to threaten in order to prevent it happening. I think one of the things that Biden has been doing in this has been waiting to the, to the point where he can say no more. I think a lot of people have said, why hasn't he said, why hasn't he called for a ceasefire sooner? Why hasn't he called for the fighting to stop sooner? You know, they blocked a resolution today calling for an immediate ceasefire Mm -hmm. and instead they're calling for like a temporary ceasefire sort of thing. But I think America are are waiting to play that card at the right moment because I don't, I, I genuinely believe that even if Biden came out and said, we don't support this, the politics in Israel are so strong that I, I, you know, it would be more a long-term effect than any short-term implication because that Netanyahu is laser-focused on this and it's his political career at stake. And don't forget, he's got court cases and he could end up in jail if some of those go badly. So there's a lot of forces at play here and it's Palestinian civilians um, and, you know, you know, Israel still has rockets fired at it that are paying the price for the, the prolonging of this war. Well, let's move along just somewhat because even at the best of times, the conflict between Israel and its Palestinian neighbours attracts enormous international attention. By way of contrast, there are those conflicts and crises which even at the worst of times struggle to get anybody to pay any attention to them at all. The current war in Sudan, which began last April, is very much ongoing. Perhaps 15,000 people have been killed and maybe 8 million displaced. In the Tigray region of Ethiopia, still reeling from recent fighting between Ethiopian and Tigrayan forces, and recently also stricken by drought, there is the prospect of full scale famine. Well, let's hear first of all from Jan Egeland, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He spoke to us from Chad on Friday. In 2003 and 2004, I was the Undersecretary for Humanitarian Affairs in centrally in the United Nations. I went to the Security Council all the time. It was on the President Bush's agenda, Prime Minister Blair in the UK, the French uh, president, uh, the uh, EU Commission, they were seized by what they saw as the most horrific abuse in Darfur and 
and, and, and the aid was coming, the diplomatic initiatives were many, the pressure on the parties to the conflict were many. Now, 20 years later, the crisis is three times more. I mean, so three times as many people are now fled to Chad. Three times as many people are fleeing inside uh, Sudan. The, the many, many more uh, families have had devastated. And it doesn't really make much headlines, nor uh, heads of state or government or, uh, or, or parliaments wanting to give aid packages, diplomatic initiatives, etc., as they should. So we're trying as humanitarian workers to cry for help here. The world must understand that this is a mega catastrophe and it needs much more attention, much more resources, much more aid and much more diplomacy. That was Jan Egelin from the Norwegian Refugee Council. Um, Mark, during your time uh, taking care of humanitarian affairs at the UN, was this a frustration to you, this apparent difficulty the world has en masse with thinking about more than one thing at a time? Well, Jan obviously was one of my predecessors (laughs) as the head of humanitarian affairs at the UN. And looking back, actually, the time he was doing the job was a less conflict-ridden, less humanitarian disaster-ridden time than has been the case over the last five or six years. But the the basic syndrome he describes that there's limited bandwidth um, and particularly humanitarian agencies are incredibly reliant on what gets covered in the media because that's what attracts attention. That's what forces a response. The Daily Show is half an hour. The news at 10 is half an hour. There's only so many things, realistically, that can be covered. And because Gaza, which we just talked about, has absorbed so much bandwidth over the last four months, and before that we had Ukraine, and before that we had Afghanistan, it's absolutely the case that this potential famine in Tigray, for example. This is the 40th anniversary of that famine, which took a million lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was my first job, actually, working on the response to that famine. So it's something I feel very strongly about. The idea that could be repeated this year fills me with shock and horror. But it's possible because the response hasn't been strong enough. Andrew Mitchell, the British minister, to his credit, went earlier this month, took a bunch of journalists with him. There's now a relief effort getting going. The question is whether it'll be big enough and fast enough to prevent a tragedy. But there's the, that central bandwidth problem is one that's grown over recent years. And the reflection of that is that last year, the UN was able to raise 35% of the money it needed around the world to deal with these crises. Whereas in the four years I was responsible for it, we raised on average 60% of the money. Um, Is there a consistent pattern, Nardine, as to why we care about some things more than others? I mean, obviously, the Middle East is attracting vast amounts of attention right now, and so it should. But I'm pretty confident you could go back to newspapers circa the second Congo War between 1998 and 2003 and see, again, vastly more coverage of what was occurring in the Middle East than you would of a war which did uh, involve the standing militaries of perhaps a dozen entire countries uh, and left perhaps five million people dead. I think it has a lot to do with the interests of the most powerful countries in, in the world. So the US, for example, has an immense interest in Ukraine and has immense interest in Israel. And a lot of these are also proxy wars in many respects. So the war in Ukraine essentially is the West versus Russia in many ways. And then the war in Israel has increasingly been like it's, you know, the West versus Iran kind of thing, or America and Iran. 
Um, so I think there are certain conflict zones um, that have that attention because they are playing out as proxy wars. Um, I think some things drive them as well. Unfortunately, I think bigotry drives some people's mm-hmm. interest in what's going on uh, in um, Israel and uh, Palestine. I think both Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, there are people who exploit it for both reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I th- so I think there's, there's various reasons why. I think geography also plays a role. Ukraine isn't actually that far away from us. Um, but you're right in pointing out that it often comes to the detriment of other conflicts and other suffering that is as just just as valid. What is happening in Sudan, you know, sometimes I see stuff on, on social media when it gets a bit more attention, is horrendous. And my inbox is full of things from places like ActionAid, trying to raise awareness of, of, of these, these, these other conflicts. So it's, it's the attention economy, unfortunately, and it applies not just to conflicts, but also things like, you know, post office scandal. As if you want to go sm- on, on a smaller level, that was going on for a long time. It was in the press for a long time took an ITV docuseries that kind of brought mm-hmm. it into public eye. So I think there's various things at, at play. And I think in the modern world, we have so much information bombarded at us. Um, it can be difficult to kind of spread things evenly. And then I also do think media does tend to get one thing in its lens. And I mean, I'm a lobby journalist. I know that happens. <laughs> it's happened many times. Partygate, prime example. Everyone goes after the same thing. And it, that's the big story that everyone wants to cover. So I think there's various reasons why. But unfortunately, I do think it leads to a loss of life in the end. Conversely, though, Mark, and do stop me if I'm wrong, this is a thing I have just wondered, does it sometimes make your life easier as a diplomat trying to make progress, resolve problems, get things done, if in fact nobody's paying any attention? Because one of the more difficult things I imagine of trying to deal with something like Israel and Palestine is that the not even the wrong sentence or the wrong word in the wrong sentence, the wrong syllable in the wrong word, and people lose their minds. That's completely the case. I mean, sometimes in the kind of not all that common, but but occasional circumstances where I've been involved in a bit of progress or diplomatic breakthrough on something, for example, dealing with the conflict in northeast Nigeria, which is a horrible, horrible Mm -hmm. conflict involving lots of extremists and innocent people losing their lives on a massive scale. Not having attention gives you a bit more space for some quiet behind the scenes diplomacy. It also means you maybe don't have to say some things. You don't have to comment on some things because other people aren't asking you. And that can give you a chance to calm things down and you can sometimes find opportunities to bring people together then. Just finally on this, Nadine, there are some conflicts, and the Israeli-Palestinian one being the ne plus ultra of them, over which people do just really... uh, they get invested almost to the point that it feels like they're enjoying striking poses. We are now witnessing here in the UK, and I know the same thing is occurring elsewhere, uh, the mildly absurd spectacle of opposition parties tearing themselves to pieces, arguing over the correct response to a conflict about which they can do absolutely nothing uh, and in which none of the protagonists care what they think. Um, Compare and contrast I guess, the lack of pickets outside Azerbaijani embassies during the recent complete ethnic cleansing of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. Exactly. And I think, you know, that also plays into it. In Among um, the British left, there is a kind of contingent of people who are very passionate about the issue of, of Palestine. And it has filtered into kind of parliamentary politics where we've seen this um, this week, the, the, the SNP are push, putting a, a ceasefire uh, motion forward, um, knowing that, that, you know, some Labour MPs 
what Labour won't want to vote for an SNP motion because that gives them control. It acts as if they're the ones running the show. So there's that politicking. So Labour have come up with their own amendment to the SNP motion, also calling for a ceasefire with some added things about hostages uh, and calling it humanitarian. And Labour will now be whipping their MPs to vote for that and not the SNPs. But as you point out, this is actually going to have zero impact on whether or not Netanyahu decides to go into Rafa. So there is this kind of you know, on a, on a local level, these things can play out in in a kind of a. I think it's, it's quite cynical what we're seeing in mm. Parliament with this, and I think there is a general unhappiness from talking to various Labour MPs today with the SNP's move on this because also. You know, there are people that are quite obsessed with, with the conflict. And it's not to say that it's not a tragedy what is happening. Indeed. But it plays out into, you know, offices getting firebombed and MPs getting harassed and death threats, etc. So there is that element of it as well, which is, is upsetting. And ultimately, does nothing to help Palestinians, does nothing to end the conflict. Um, and yeah, so it, it, tomorrow is likely going to be... Um, quite a quite a busy and, and probably inflammatory day. Nadine Bachelor Hunt and Mark Lowcock, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. When the death of Russian opposition figurehead Alexei Navalny was reported last week, his wife, Yulia Navalny, was attending the Munich Security Conference. She spoke a matter of hours after the news broke and in the days since has declared that she intends to continue his work. Also at Munich was someone who would have found Navalny's circumstances horribly familiar. Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya ran in Belarus's presidential election of 2020 after her husband, the original opposition candidate, was, as he still is, imprisoned. It is widely believed that she won that election, but Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, forced her into exile in Lithuania. I spoke to Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya in Munich. The folder she brought to our interview was emblazoned with a portrait of her husband, Sergei Tsikhanovsky. I began by asking, if she'd heard from him lately. No, actually, my husband, the same as many other political prisoners, he's kept in incommunicado mode. It means it's like new uh, method of torture in uh, Belarus. It means that a uh, lawyer doesn't have possibility to visit him. Letters are not delivered. My children haven't like heard or haven't received a letter from their daddy for one year already. I don't know if he's alive. I don't know in what state he is. Does he get any medicine? You know, I don't know what he's eating. So if he's in punishment cell or, or what, you actually don't know anything about about him and of course it's like a disaster you are like waking up with the thought about your husband and other political prisoners going to bed but this is what is like uh, pushing me forward I know that we have to release all these people. People are dying in prisons. People are getting awful diseases there and don't get any medical aid. It's like uh, gulag in Belarus. And this is a policy carried out towards all political prisoners in Belarus, not just your husband, this idea that they're kind of semi-disappeared by the regime? Actually, you know, at the moment we have estimated about 1,600 political prisoners, but actual number is much higher. We even don't know all the people in prisons who are charged on political motivated cases because society is so frightened by tortures and intimidation that relatives don't want to speak publicly about this. Because if you speak loudly, so your relative, your beloved can be treated much, much worse. 
But we have a lot of prisoners in Belarus, of course, but attitude to political prisoners is much, much worse than to murderers, uh, rapists, and so on and so forth. They are in worse position. I mean, the stakes obviously are considerable for people who go up against the, the Lukashenko regime, but as, as far as it's possible to tell now, is there much ongoing active resistance to the regime within Belarus, or is it now simply impossible? No, inside the country, it's extremely difficult and dangerous to be vocal and active. But despite of this, despite the fact that every day in Belarus, 15, 20 people are being detained every day without weekend, people are finding strength to build small societies, communities. You know, they continue to communicate. They continue to donate to Ukrainian army and support political prisoners' families. You know, they are pushing uh, Belarusian national identity because it's also crime at the moment in in, uh, Belarus. You know, repressions are continuing because Lukashenko's regime knows that they didn't manage to suppress people completely. And I'm talking to people who are inside Belarus a lot because for me it's important not to live in this exiled bubble but stay in contact dialogue with people inside the country. And people tell me, look, tell to our like European friends that we are here. Yes, we are silent at the moment because we don't want to sacrifice our freedom in vain. We will need our strength in future when the moment comes. So people are very active in the internet. It's also like battlefield at the moment. People feel freedom, a piece of freedom there, and uh, they're communicating a lot and tweeting, and even if even um, working in uh, cyberspace is also dangerous for Belarusians, but nevertheless, people keep our fight in focus. They might discuss politics now in kitchens. People have two mobiles, for example, one for like clean one for KGB and one where they read news and communicate with other people. And this is a ways how to survive, how to continue this fight. I mean, it's obviously been very difficult the last couple of years to keep people focused on Belarus when everybody is focused and not unreasonably on Ukraine. But I, I know that or at least I read that last summer at the NATO summit in Vilnius, where you're now based, you did meet US President Joe Biden. How did that conversation go? How do you make a case to the US president in a situation like that? You know, I'm explaining to all the political leaders of the democratic world that destiny of Belarus and Ukraine are intertwined. We are facing the same enemy and we can't lose no Ukraine, no Belarus in this fight. Because if we, uh, for example, leave Belarus's consolation prize for Putin, Putin will use our territory using Lukashenko and it will be constant threat to regional security. Belarus should be independent and free and only this will be like provide stability in our region. I show of course, we have to talk about the war. Of course, we have to support Ukrainians as much as we can. And the world has to help Ukrainians to win because it's not just defending territory or land. It's defending like values, defending freedoms. But I show connection between our nations. And we can't like look at Ukraine and Belarus separately. Because as I understand it, one of the thing, reasons you're here at Munich is to make the case for more involvement in helping to end Belarus's involvement in this war. But practically, how does that work? Because we're talking here about removing the Lukashenko regime, right? Yeah. In Belarus, we have to distinguish Belarusian regime and people. People of Belarus haven't been involved into this war. 90 
with something percents of Belarusians are against participation of Belarus in this war. We don't have any imperialistic ambitions. Ukrainians as nations are very close to our nation. Our language is very similar, so we always felt, you know, this connection. But Lukashenko, he is a war criminal. He who seized power back in 2020, he allowed our country to be used as launching pad. He dragged our country into this war. And of course, he has to be a responsibility for this. But the world, democratic world, has to help Belarusians to defeat dictator, to get Belarus out of this war. And yeah, so this is this is how we like, you know, what's what goes invisibly on international arena that it's creeping occupation of Belarus. Yes, Russia is fighting with tanks and missiles in Ukraine. It's so visible. It's, it's ruined cities. It's blood. But in Belarus, we see how Russia subjugating our country piece by piece. And actually, Lukashenko is still in our country. We see how Russia, they present in our media sphere, in propaganda, in our economy, military sphere, education. We see the process of Russification of Belarus. It's not noticeable. You know, so many things are happening in the world. And of course, you know, no visibility, like uh, <laughs> no interest, actually. But this is what's going on. And we have to pay more attention to this because one day we can wake up and see that Belarus, with the allowance of Lukashenko, is under ego of Russia. So we will lose our independence. And this is huge threat for our country. That was Svetlana Sikhanovskaya speaking to me at the Munich Security Conference last week. Let's go back to our panel. Um, Mark, first of all, is is there or are there examples that leap to mind from history of the spouse stepping up? Um, Corazon Aquino was one I thought of uh, who sort of became Filipino opposition leader after the assassination of her husband and went on to become a reasonably effective president. Uh, yes, that's a good example. Uh, I think when people communicate as powerfully as in the interview you've just Mm. played it's really um it does sustain the work of their spouses i mean one person i admire very much is grassa michelle who originally Mm -hmm. was married to the president of mozambique later in life married to nelson mandela of course i I think she's the only two-time first lady uh, in in all of human history i can't think of any others and that's just one of her many accomplishments and the I think the the thing that's very striking about her and Mandela is how they supported each other on their shared passions, but backed each other's campaigns um, in the period of life where most of us are trying to have a rest and, um, you know, enjoy our, our final years. And um, particularly because of the campaigns, they both supported human rights, um, trying to bring attention to the plight of children in conflict. Um, she was involved in creating this group, the Elders, this group mm. of elder statesmen and stateswomen, former heads of government, former UN Secretaries General, who behind the scenes tried to work to calm down problems. Um, so, yes, there's, um, particularly in the Mandela case, because, of course, his first wife was when he was a more controversial figure, <laughs> um, the fact that he and Grass and Michelle were able to support each other in the way they did I thought was really impressive. There's a symbolic value as well, isn't there, Nadine, of the of the spouse continuing. It it, it sort of uh, suggests that you can't put us away that easily. Yeah, I think in this you know this case, a lot of the times when there's a, a movement, if the leader's killed off, as people think that maybe it will just fizzle out. And I think what what she's kind of doing is saying no, just because he's gone doesn't mean that you know this this movement can't continue. She's obviously putting herself in a very dangerous position though, because mm-hmm. Putin's in an election year. All this is like very very scary, very scary time. Um, but no, I think it's admirable, and to be doing that through grief 
I mean, you know, yeah. losing lo- losing somebody you love, and then you know having to take up that mantle, and the mantle really that led to them dying. It's just it's just very very brave, and you know I can't even comprehend the the kind of the, the fortitude of the, the, the people that kind of do this sort of stuff. Well, finally on today's show, boffins at Stanford University claim to have settled the ancient debate about whether or not there is inherent difference in the operation of male and female brains, and they have settled it in the affirmative. An AI model scrutinised. MRI scans of working brains and picked consistent, if subtle, differences to the extent that it could tell 90% of the time whether it was watching a chap's brain or a chap S's. Although many of these variations seem to have been related to social functioning, which it might be plausibly argued is conditioned by society. So really, who knows? Uh, Mark, are, are we buying this? Do we really need AI to tell us there are differences between men and women? (laughs) One thing is for sure, that this settles nothing. And AI is a really funny mix. Statements of the blindingly obvious like this, then some really piercing, valuable insights, particularly in scientific research. And then, this is especially my experience of chat GBT, things that turn out just to be completely wrong. So... um, you know, there are some differences. Um, women, we've talked most of the show today about wars. Women start fewer wars mm-hmm. than men. Um, I was, I asked my wife, I took the precaution of asking my wife what I should say Sensible on this topic fellow. before I came on. <laughs> she pointed out that um, I've had more traffic violations and been on more speed awareness courses than her. So we now agree that she should do most of the driving. Do, does she have some sort of wall chart up, um, keep, keeping count of this? Please do not put ideas in her head, Andrew. <laughs> but but there, I mean, right there, though, uh, Nadine, and I'm, I am not suggesting, uh, Mark, that you should have been imprisoned for any any of those offences, but but that, that that is one irreducible fact that you I, I don't see that you can argue otherwise that there is a difference in there somewhere. The percentage of women convicted of violent crimes versus men convicted of violent crimes. I mean, it's that's that's not a slight difference. No, I mean you know almost every crime, <laughs> like everything mm. really, like things like that and war, etc. Obviously, men patriarchy is a thing, like it it is a thing. And um, but I think the what the, the AI hasn't answered the question of really is how much of it is social socially conditioned versus in, inherent. And I think I, I imagine that some of this is going to be weaponized by that kind of anti-trans lobby and all this sort of stuff, saying you know a man is a man and a woman is a woman or whatever, but. Fundamentally, I think if we can understand more about the human brain, that's great. I think mm-hmm. um, I was on a different radio show yesterday and we, we chatted about this story. What? And, what, <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that it pointed out, for example, is men are more likely to have dyslexia than women, mm-hmm. but women are more likely to have clinical depression. So if there are those kind of things going on in the brain that we can understand. But I think I, I you know, this is just me not being a scientist. I think a lot of it is going to be socialised. I think the way women are socialised is very different to men. And I think that has a very a significant impact on behavioural things. So um, I, maybe maybe it's going to be ground, lead to groundbreaking discoveries. I'm not that convinced. But um, also just goes to show how many different ways AI can be used as well. I, didn't, I really didn't think that it could be used in this way. So it's it, like, kind of scary, to be honest. Well, on that somewhat nonplussed note, Nadine Bachelor-Hunt <laughs> and Sir Mark Lowcock, thank you both for joining us. Also to Hank Gonzalez at the top of the show. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. It was produced by Chris Chermack and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Lily Austin with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.